Vietnam films were a new breed of war film, and I'm not just talking about the films specifically about Vietnam. The stakes of World War II were so high, and the greatest generation's disposition as a people so specifically stoic, that the films they themselves made about their war were imbued with a reverence. These were important stories told about a good war, a war in which 73 million people died, and that touched the lives of almost everyone on Earth. Even in corny adventure films about World War II, the necessity of the war wasn't one of the questions the filmmakers set out to ask. But by the time the Vietnam War kicked off, some of the luster had worn off of telling war stories. That's why so many of the World War II films we've watched from the late 60s onward feel like they're trying to relitigate things. They're grappling with issues presented by war for their contemporary audiences in the safe confines of a war that didn't make us wonder, are we the baddies? The American self-image, at least for the subset of Americans whose socioeconomic, religious, and ethnic identities have traditionally been pandered to by our culture, has always been one of being the good guys. We are the country that was founded by the guys that landed here and had a nice Thanksgiving dinner with the Indians, but then we saw the injustice of tea taxes and we dumped the tea in the harbor and have been fighting injustice ever since. Like... That time we fought to defeat slavery, or that time we came to the rescue twice in two back-to-back world wars. The long arc of history bends toward justice, and it's hard to fight for justice, but we always do it, because gosh darn it, we're the good guys. You get the sense that that's not just a majority opinion, but a kind of orthodoxy among a certain kind of older American. And frankly, if you lived through the Great War, the Great Depression, and the Great War II, colon, the secret of the ooze, you might never have encountered a challenge to that assumption. Even if you were a genius in a -a once-in-a-lifetime political phenom like Lyndon Baines Johnson. The question, are we the baddies, was almost incompatible with the version of the OS he was running on. The other thing that changed about films in the Vietnam era was how rugged they got. This reached its apotheosis later when Oliver Stone started to polemicize the war, but you could see it as early as the Johnson years. A Vietnam-era film is often sweaty, bloody, and brutal. But today's film takes an entirely different approach. It tells the story of the war from the perspective of the White House and the decision makers who committed us to the quagmire. Every choice was made honestly and every argument was made in good faith by members of the greatest generation who imagined themselves to be the good guys. Today we get a 2002 John Frankenheimer film exploring how the good guys could have broken so bad. I know they're losing. I don't need a Phi Beta Kappa to know they're losing. Anyone smart enough to pour piss out of a boot knows they're losing. Today on Friendly Fire, Path to War. Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast that's been tossed about more than a dollar whore at a port of call. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. And I'm John Roderick. Pretty soapy language there. You're not supposed to say that word anymore, but uh, but it's a quote from the film. It's not, it's not my word. You're not supposed to say whore anymore? <laughs> yeah, I think you're supposed to say uh, a, uh, a sex worker that's priced to move. There are so many... <laughs> So many great poems and, and sailors ditties that are that are canceled. Yeah. yeah. None of them are gonna rhyme anymore. <laughs> John, you're the songwriter. What what rhymes with sex worker? 
<laughs> uh, Herp Derper? Right. There you go. That's it. Yeah. That's the only That's thing. That's all you got. Yeah. Yeah. This movie definitely starts with a scene that is designed to impress you with the cast that it got together. Mm, yeah. Like, I think, I think a lot of these HBO films are like, all right, we don't have the budget to, you know, make our own Vietnam footage. So we'll use stock footage of that. But what we do have is a great big ballroom that we smoked up and put like 43 that guys in tuxedos to walk around in. <laughs> it really sets the tone. It really it's does. It's amazing. It really does. Michael Gambon was a great LBJ in my opinion. Totally. What's it going to take to get Ho Chi Minh to quit? That's all I want to know. The accent never came all the way there and by by hour 2 of the movie I was I was invested in him as LBJ. But LBJ's yeah. way of speaking was just so unique and Gambon he just he would slide into British or it's you know he he just yeah. that's got to be the hardest accent West Texas it's just got to be actually John that uh, that smashes right into the uh, the IMDB goof that I found for this uh, episode a pedant noticed that Lyndon B Johnson was a native of Texas However, Michael Gambon's native British accent occasionally slips in, particularly in the pronunciation of some words, taught, fought, should, or heart, and the use of some terms that would be unfamiliar to an American, such as gobbledygook. What? Which is an insane thing for an internet pedant to write, because gobbledygook derives from United States slang. It was coined by a Texas congressman. Texas politician Maury Maverick, the guy that, that gave us the word Maverick. He also gave us the word gobbledygook. Downvote this pedant. Mark <laughs> is inappropriate. Did not find this interesting. <laughs> I was really impressed with how much work a haircut and the right glasses do in making a person look like another person. And later on in the film, Lyndon Johnson's glasses, I thought, yeah. did a ton of the heavy lifting. Glasses and posture. And brill cream. It's a hell of a combination. Yeah. It, it feels like the, the film got more believably Lyndon Johnson as it went. Yeah. I thought that uh, that McNamara was also like like same exact list of things, right? Mm -hmm. Like the the slicked back hair, the, the, the right glasses, and suddenly Alec Baldwin <laughs> looks like McNamara. Hey, if you lived in the 60s and you were an adult man... Did you take a shower before bed every night or did you go to bed with your greased up hair on the pillow every night? You like a, you do like a hairnet like uh, like George Clooney <laughs> and Oh Brother Where Art Thou? It's funny Adam that you that you ask that because taking a shower every day only became a thing that people did in the 80s. And in a lot of cases people took a shower I think pretty commonly once a week they what? didn't because if you took a shower more often than that you had to redo all your hair so the benefit of this hairstyle is that is that you do it once you set it and forget it <laughs> for the rest of the week you put that stuff in there and then all you need to do is run a comb through it but this was true of lady hair too like you'd get your hair done and then you'd put it up at night and then you'd do it you'd, then you'd wash it at the end of the week and you get it done again. Would you stick your neck on a foam roller to keep it up off of the pillow? I just don't understand how you you don't wake up with 
with crazy ass hair every morning yeah, and, and a pillow that just looks like an atrocity that looks like a used diaper. You still got the stuff in the hair, but you just pull a comb through it. Wow. Yeah, you pull a comb through it. And th- this is also probably during a time when, although you only showered once a week, you change your pillowcases every every uh, so often, unlike today where you wash your hair every day, but you change your pillowcases once a month. This is back when they called it bed clothes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember in the 80s when I started to, when I was going through puberty and started to take a shower every day and my mom was like incredulous. <laughs> You're taking another shower? And I'm like, a sh- yeah, a today's shower. And she's like, you kids today with your crazy ways. What's that sound I keep hearing while you're in the shower? Well, that doesn't sound like showering to me. It was my motorized <laughs> U-boat. <laughs> that uh, that that dive, dive. forward torpedo tube in that toy that uh, should get a lot of action in those days. It was a medium-sized U-boat, big enough for the tub, <laughs> not big enough for anything weird. It it's interesting. This movie is a is kind of a um, a reply movie to the documentary The Fog of War. I think this movie came out right before Fog of War. Oh, did actually. it really? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, I think this is 2002 and Fog of War came out in 2003. Oh, no kidding. Wow. I felt like they were speaking to each other for sure. Like you're you're not uh you're not alone having having picked up on that because that whole arc with McNamara like being super hawkish and then like it almost feels like this movie is making the case that he he had his will broken. To some extent, like seeing the the protests day after day and getting less and less sure of himself as his as his uh, strategies just didn't pan out the way his calculations said that they would. Like McNamara being the the Secretary of Defense that, unlike Donald Rumsfeld, sort of repented for what he did. It's been a long time since I've seen Fog of War, but. It does make me want to go back and watch it again. If it were a reply to this film, I really felt like Path of War presented both LBJ and uh, McNamara as sympathetic figures, oddly. Like, McNamara couldn't get out of the way of his nature as as an analyst first right. and, a, and everything else that a human being is second. and and honestly like like that sounds super cutting but i i felt sorry for him through much of the film because he just couldn't he didn't seem like he had all of the qualities that a that a person has He, he felt like something was missing to him and i feel like the reasons we kept cutting to his relationship with his wife was a way to further emphasize that like he was so he was so determined to to see the thing through analytically that that there was no room for emotion and LBJ was almost exactly the opposite he was right. hyper emotional and he couldn't yeah. he couldn't go the other direction this as much as anything is a movie that's about what a bad situation it would be to have a petty and vain person in the oval office right well if McNamara felt like he needed to respond to this film it just it just makes me wonder in what way he attempted to do that like was was his position I actually did have feelings and I felt very bad about all of the things I was complicit in or yeah or or you just don't understand what that job is man and I'm here to tell you like 
I, I wish I had seen that film more recently to say. It makes me want to see it for sure. I mean, I remember that I came away from Flag of War pretty surprised at how um, how much regret McNamara expressed yeah. and how and and how like toward the end of his life he he came to understand how many at how many points he'd like completely misunderstood what the North Vietnamese were doing and I think it's sort of shown in this movie too like that like he and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff both keep just like they cannot get out of their head the idea that like oh like if we like destroy their fuel supply that will completely eliminate their ability to keep prosecuting this war because they're thinking of the North Vietnamese as being a conventional army and and so all of their calculations are based on a faulty assumption and all of the like things that they see the Vietnamese doing they can trace back to motivations of a conventional army that aren't the actual motivations of what they're doing. A post-Vietnam McNamara is such an interesting character. Like, did you guys read that someone attempted to kill him by throwing him off of a ferry and he didn't press charges against the guy because he was like, yeah, I totally understand where he was coming from. <laughs> I would throw me off a ferry too. <laughs> it's incredible. He, he lived for a long time afterward and he had to live with his decisions publicly. Uh, no, sir, I'm afraid we did lose one plane. This movie was hard to watch. It's really long. It's not super compelling. Like, it's not, not like a fun two hours and 45 minutes, but... This is a kind of movie, though, right? Like... Yeah. I think for its kind, I thought it was great. It's a descent into, I would say. <laughs> and that's like that's like one of my least favorite genres. But I think that the fact that it's like historical is is also infuriating because we're watching LBJ just like bang himself against the hallways in in the White House like not wanting to do this stuff and yet feeling compelled to do it and never never having the moral courage to be like all right this is actually like we've taken this way too far and we needed to like shut it down and stop that fucking really happened like we don't have good social programs in this country we have dog shit education we have a dog shit social safety net because of these decisions and people that thought that they could like continue to make this kind of decisions in administrations that followed this yeah the movie lets lbj off the hook a lot more than i think history will um in the sense that it makes lbj feel like a little bit of a patsy or um, it it really plays up the the degree to which these decisions were being recommended to him by his by his brainy cohort, and he's mm -hmm. just like, well, I want to get back to uh, civil rights, but uh, you know my advisors keep pushing me into war. I mean, LBJ was an incredibly energetic president. And he wanted to do everything and his great society programs in a, in a lot of ways do form the backbone of what we think of as the social services of today. Like without LBJ, there wouldn't be a lot of, I mean, of the whole concept of public housing or what, I mean, you know, there were a lot of things that came about as a result of LBJ's interest in um, social services, civil rights. He was trying to build a great society, but he didn't get pulled into Vietnam by McNamara. 
you know, and this movie kind of shows, shows this relationship as like McNamara being a super hawk and LBJ being like, what really? Can't we just, can't I get back to my <laughs> civil rights legislation? It really pits like, like nom versus the voting rights act, which right. do you want to do? Right. You have to pick. But McNamara was not a super hawk. You know, McNamara was one of the, the guys in the room and during the Cuban Missile Crisis and was like, in, in a lot of ways, we owe our civilization to like a handful of people there. And he was one of them, right? One of the level mm -hmm. heads. McNamara was not a war ma. I mean, well, wait a minute. Let me just pull that <laughs> statement back. <laughs> you know, the, the, watching this was maybe the first time in my life that I had the, a, a briefly the thought flitted through my mind like, God, Vietnam, who gives a shit anymore? And it, it, it like startled me to have the thought because Vietnam has been at the center of my life. I mean, in terms of politics, like. I love that you edited yourself to say that. <laughs> <laughs> but, but in a way, like this movie, the boringness of it or whatever, like to a boomer or an old generation Xer, like we know all these characters. We know this. We know this all. And watching this is just like, um, We've just heard all these these terms. We've watched all this play out in so many conversations and so many documentaries and newspaper editorials, like our whole lives. But we won't get out, Bob. We will double our bets and get massacred in the rice paddies. We watch all of these people go home at night and and put on their bedclothes or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, this is supposed to, for people like me, be a be like a tantalizing glimpse into the inner chambers of stuff that's, you know, this is just Washington post fodder, this, all this stuff, you know, LBJ and McNamara both had bigger personalities. If that's possible to imagine than Gambon and Baldwin, like n neither of them got anywhere close to communicating yeah. just the charisma the arrogance, the insanity, the the self-confidence. Do you think the casting of Baldwin as McNamara was a choice about making McNamara more sympathetic? Because there's a charisma to Baldwin that he just has inherently in any role that, that I think pulls you in. There's a gravity to him that almost makes the point that that we should root for him because because we're ma we're made to root for Alec Baldwin characters in movies and we've been trained to do that for a decade leading up to this and that but that's that that gravity that he has what it doesn't communicate like I don't know how much time you guys have spent uh, around people that are super duper confident that they're the smartest person in the room I know that you have spent some amount of time with people like that. I can't think of anyone who I would describe <laughs> that way. We should do a show with one of those guys, Ben. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Where would we find such a person, though? <laughs> but people that are really like that, they have a sense. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> they have a sense of humor. McNamara had less doubt than Alec Baldwin is communicating with his gravity. Like McNamara had a big smile on his face most of his life. 
because everything worked out for McNamara and he had the numbers to prove it. And he was making decisions that were based on data analysis. And so, and he loved to sit and argue with you, but it wasn't. And there are a few moments like that when, where you get the sense of, of McNamara just being like, Oh yeah, that was a great argument. Like, thanks for, thanks for having that wonderful (laughs) argument. with me about you really made it interesting on the other side i mean you were wrong (laughs) but it was like very interesting to hear you say all that stuff and you seem very passionate but that was that was one moment in the film and we see a lot of mcnamara agonizing and i think he did agonize but he agonized in a different way there was nothing broody about mcnamara because he was so and LBJ too, like what the thing that Gambon didn't communicate about LBJ was that LBJ went into every conversation feeling like he knew best. I, at least I never got a sense of LBJ being so fickle. These are accurate. I mean, th- this is historical, right? And LBJ did lose faith and eventually like the world came crashing down around him. But he, yeah. but LBJ made that world. Like he went into Vietnam full of West Texas confidence that he was going to f- prosecute this war. He wasn't like a dupe. But see if you can't leave me about it, an age from the, where the zipper uh, ends. One thing that really blew me away about this movie is how theoretical it all seems for these people. Like they're just going around to different rooms with like nice white wood paneling and paintings from the (laughs) revolutionary era and talking about like, you know, Da Nang and Ho Chi Minh and, and all these like airstrips and stuff. Like they're literally fighting the war on paper, just like, Oh, like if, you know, if we take this out, but can manage to avoid hitting this school that's down the road, then this, this, and this will happen because that's how this works. And like one thing that's really powerful about Gambon's performance is that he really seems to care about the outcome. And that is always something I wonder about when you're, when you're so far removed, when you don't like he goes to Vietnam eventually, but for most of the movie, he's like never been there. He's never set foot there. He doesn't actually have any like connection to anyone there. It's all just kind of like an abstract concept but he seems to really, really care about like the, you know, like doing right by the people of South Vietnam. I mean, LBJ was the best politician in American history. And what the movie never made clear, it did show him really care about the school. But what it didn't show was him calculating the political consequences of a blown up school being on the front page of the newspaper. And a lot of what LBJ was doing, I think, was saying, how is this going to play in the court of public opinion? We we mock Donald Trump for sitting and watching TV all day and taking, uh, you know, and tweeting about how he's being portrayed. But uh, every politician at that level is super duper conscious of the editorial pages. None of them want to see dead kids on the front page of the Washington Post. And we didn't see yeah. that in this performance. Gambon is portrayed as, or Gambon is portraying LBJ as, you know, as concerned about the people. Early in the movie, as he's navigating the, the civil rights legislation, we see him portrayed as a canny politician. When he gets George Wallace in there, 
and and gets right in his face and manipulates yeah. him. Um, and that's the LBJ that I know. Did you read about <laughs> the treatment? Like that's what he was known for was this sort of how he could work someone politically. And there's like a physicality to it and a hypnosis almost about it that was legendary. Right in your physical space. Yeah, the way the way he moved a person physically in order to make himself dominant, I thought I thought was really great. I could have used more scenes like that. I could have used more scenes where he was taking a dump and like giving some uh, information to one of his aides. Well, you, you know, wh- one of the famous stories of LBJ is that he had a really big dick and he mm-hmm. would intentionally go stand next to you too close to you at a at a urinal while he was talking politics <laughs> with you like now we're gonna have to get this legislation passed and he would just pull out his fucking giant schlong and he would and it wasn't he wasn't like being subtle about it he'd be like now take a look at this boy now you're gonna need to you're gonna need to just respect the my dick like it, he was he was famous for it you know like he did that shit I think that Baldwin was cast partly because he really looks like McNamara when he yeah. when he does his hair. I mean, he's definitely not a likable character at the beginning of this movie. Part of that is that like we're bringing our knowledge of like how Vietnam went. So anybody that's like, let's go do this is going to be somewhat villainous at the beginning. But like his his character arc is definitely bending towards sympathetic in this film, but that's kind of a magic trick, right? Because like you shouldn't have to watch a man set himself on fire to catch yourself and realize that you've been fucking things up for <laughs> two years. I mean, I, th- I felt like the message of that scene was, was how unemotional McNamara was at having witnessed it. He doesn't break down in the moment, but he's always he's fixated on that spot for the rest of the film. It it really affects him, I think. It, I think it's instructive about how he processes information and emotional things, though, that moment. Yeah. Like he does not absorb it the way many people would, which is which is in horror or or to recoil from it, but he observes it almost like a scientist would. The the, the movie paints that as the turning point in his life, though. Yeah. I think it's really problematic scene the way it's erected because Norman Morrison is made to look like a like a crazy drifter yeah he is I think there is a case to be made that Norman Morrison was not in his right mind when he took a baby in a basket and stood outside the Pentagon and set himself on fire (laughs) for sure but he was also like a devout Quaker and he didn't do it just because he was like you know, fuck the world. He he was devout in his cause and it was a, a political act and it was probably partly inspired by similar acts that had been performed by Buddhist monks in Vietnam. Like, like to have him just show up, like looking like a guy who's, you know, at the edge of his end of his rope, I feel like kind of undercuts the, the power of the of the act that he... Ben, we just talked about this at the beginning of the episode. Everyone looked like this. No one was showering. <laughs> <laughs> We're watching these best and the brightest people with the with absolutely the whole world at their disposal, right? Johnson has won the, the election in 64 with the greatest majority of any president. And 
really controlled the the world had had tremendous support and mandate and power and we watch it just slip through his fingers and and we watch ourselves fall into this intractable and unwinnable war that in a way you could say has been going on ever since yeah from 64 to the present we've never fully understood the wars that we've been in and we keep getting into these ball like keep saying like bombing never wins the war it's not that like it's not like that they they didn't have access to a worldview that contained their downfall <laughs> before they did this stuff i mean it's the story of of the united states right the way we won the american revolution that was the the minutemen like didn't just line up and get mown down by the redcoats we we fought right. a, a guerrilla war to a certain extent and it's evidence of of an action bias right where people in the military given a choice between not doing anything and doing something will always pick do something even if it's clear that what we should do at this moment is not do anything but also at this point in history there's this incredible technology bias i've always believed that the mind is the best weapon we've built all this war making equipment to fight a war with the soviets and we have all these bombers and all these fast jets and all this stuff that we've made to counter this intercontinental threat and magic submarines and spies and nukes and all this stuff. And so in looking at the problem of Vietnam, it's not just that they're fighting the last war, which was a war that you could maybe make a case that strategic bombing you know, we at least flattened both Tokyo, Berlin, and 80 other cities in both countries. I mean, this movie is long enough that they even have that argument <laughs> in this movie. <laughs> but what But what do you do if what you have is B-52s? You use B-52s is the, is the problem. And they're fighting the last war and a future war that they're anticipating, but not the current war. They are not dealing with Vietnam. And you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, Ball is such a great character in this movie, and, and I, think it's, I think it's fairly accurate representation of his viewpoints throughout, where he just keeps saying, like, Dien Bien Phu, did you guys not read the book? Like, this is not, to the Vietnamese, this is not a, this is not the war that, you're, that you think it is, and they will fight you forever. And just nobody in the room listens. I mean, if you're going to cast a George Ball, Bruce McGill is is just a great choice. I mean, Bruce McGill goes through every emotion in this movie. He's he's really spectacular in it, I think. Ben, I think you mentioned earlier the the problem of proximity, right? That that no one no one was over there to really give those that made these decisions the perspective they needed. What they had instead was West Westmoreland asking for more shit. Right. And I thought that was a that was a very damning depiction of how decisions were made so remotely, yeah. you know? Like here's a guy on the well, I guess if he needs more more B52s, we better give it to him. Give him to him, right? If he needs more troops, what we're not going to say no to Westmoreland, right? Well, and it's that death of a thousand cuts thing because at the beginning they're like, you know, nobody is talking about half a million troops. Like that's 
like put that out of your mind because we are we're not going to do this war with half a million troops like that that's just insane and then by the end they're like okay like we're probably going to need like 750,000 troops and like you know open up the bombing to everything everything's on the table now like it they establish their parameters pretty early but they lose their nerve and part of it is that that pivotal moment where somebody asks the chairman of the joint chiefs like how how would you define victory if we do in fact like escalate this war in vietnam and his answer answer is so weaselly but they're like they're all so fucking confident in their own abilities there's this like distributed hubris in the room that they believe in their own abilities and each other's abilities that there's like yeah like even even this bullshit answer of we're going to fight them to a tie so that they like realize that they can't win that was like the core scene in the movie to me was that no one ever talked about winning the war and that winning the war was was forcing a stalemate yeah what mean victory rambo that's exactly what happened in iraq and afghanistan What's your definition yeah, right. of victory here? What's your definition of victory in the war on terror? It's a question that the press didn't even ask, you know? Like when when we were deciding as a country to go to Afghanistan and Iraq, like go get the guys that got us was kind of on the list, but it wasn't like the only it was clearly not the only goal. It's so interesting that like this movie made in 2002 is made to ask those questions in the lead up to the war you're talking about, Ben. God, I didn't even think about That's that. Crazy. Like this is at that moment in history. What's crazy about American government is that like, you don't need a reporter on the ground in Vietnam to, to call the white house and say, Hey, well, let me tell you, you know, they like uh, rice dishes here. They've got a delicious soup. It's called pho. You know what? We, we have <laughs> people who know what there is to know. There's never in government uh, the proper inclusion of people who spend their lives studying other cultures, politics, history, government even. You know, like Dean Rusk in this movie is the Secretary of State, and all of their all of their Secretary of State apparatus in this movie, it's all this kind of um, a diplomacy at the highest level mentality. But there are people in the American government in 1964 who are like raising their hands and going, I, I, you know, I have a PhD in Vietnamese history and culture. And my desk mate over here has a PhD in, you know, Marxism in Asia and we would just like to say, and this was true in, in Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, there are people raising their hands and saying, there is no way to win a land war in Afghanistan. Hearts and minds are not available to us there. That's right. All you have to do is read the Flashman books. You know, like it's not, it really isn't science. And there's this, there's a, uh, there's an engineering bias in this 1964 White House and in the, in White Houses in general. You want data, you want it broken down, you want to take poll numbers into consideration, but, but you want to look at a map, you want to move pieces around, and anytime you get somebody in there 
in the room who's like, well, culturally, you're not going to be able to force these people to surrender. It's intrinsic to their culture that they never surrender. It's also intrinsic to their culture that they will, you know, they'll put out a, a wonderful meal for you if you come visit their home. <laughs> I, th- I think that like, like a problem with the way the media presents this stuff to us, because at some point it sort of turned into like they cover politics now kind of the same way they cover sports, which is like, it's only exciting if we don't know who's going to win till the very end. And, you know, like each team has an equal, could equally well earn, you know, champion status or whatever. Hearing you make a sports analogy is just a delight. (laughs) And I I just want to say that. There was a, a, a Bill Clinton speech a few years ago where he was talking, I think it was, Uh, probably in the run-up to Obama's second election where he talked about the financial crisis and it was an issue in that election that Obama had bailed out the automobile industry. (laughs) The automobiles, huh? Yeah. I'm also not interested in cars. (laughs) Going to pay your bills? Going to pay your automobiles? (laughs) Yeah. He he said like no, no nation that has the capacity to manufacture automobiles would let it with, you know, in, a, in its right mind would let that capacity go away. And it was like the Republicans were making an issue of like, why did we bail out this industry? And it just like cracked my brain open. Like, oh, yeah. Like if you're the president, you have to think about like what things can my country do and how do I like make those capabilities bigger and better? And that is, it was just like so far from the like framing of that issue that we'd seen in the media was like, oh, like, did, you know, did he give a handout to this big business or not? And should he have or not? And, and like, I think that one thing that I picked up on in this movie is that LBJ kind of, he has like a very strong understanding of like what he want, like the, the version of the country he wants to leave office with in terms of domestic agenda. But it almost feels like at least this characterization of LBJ barely cares about the the foreign policy side of what it means to be president. Like he kind of wants to let the, you know, the State Department and the Department of Defense kind of figure that out and tell him how to do it. And I think that's not inaccurate. Yeah. There's that point in the movie where somebody's like, well, you made all these decisions. Like they made the recommendations, but you're the one that made the calls. And it's damning, but I feel like it's kind of just one scene in a, in a movie that could have been making that case a little harder. Well, I mean, crucially about that scene, it isn't just it isn't just the the jab of you decided, you're the decider, it's your job. It's the it's the hook that follows later that he decided, but it was against his life experience and instinct to make the decisions that he did. It's not just he made the wrong choice. It's that he acted against his his nature that was that made that scene so brutal. Except his nature was, and th- this is the thing about a charismatic leader, LBJ believed that he could cajole and swagger and pull his dick out. You know, he, wa- he, he believed that if he can get a Southern congressman to vote for the Civil Rights Act, he can solve the problem in Vietnam. And just that feeling of like, yeah, he's not, a for- he's not thinking foreign policy. You hardly ever hear him talk about 
the Soviets or the Chinese, except in the sense that the Vietnam War is going to bring them into the sphere. But this domino theory, this this belief that if we didn't, if if Vietnam became communist, that Laos would, and then that then Thailand would, and then, uh, you know, the Philippines would. The, this was just sort of conventional wisdom. It wasn't anybody's doctrine. It just became the kind of general sense of what geopolitics was, which was this this just bipolar universe. You're either with us or against us. And LBJ just thought he could just sort of broad shoulder his way through it. I can only give my best advice. McNamara does ride pretty hard for the the domino theory though oh he does but but anyone in the room would have except for you know except for ball and and um well they also just care so much about not being the first administration to lose something and they kind of feel like they've got the war already that's a more persuasive argument than the domino theory to me because anyone who has ever advocated for the domino theory never speaks about it to its conclusion which is how does that affect us once it's done, like the, like the fear of a communist Southeast Asia being a completed project, no one ever talks about like the consequence of that in practical terms. What does that mean for our country? Really? What's interesting about, about the, the war of ideas between capitalism and communism, and it always surprises me how somewhere there was such a great insecurity about yeah capitalism in the united St- in in the mind of the west like they really did feel vulnerable and it's funny because at the because the the way that they projected the way that i'm talking about just like the sort of bilderberg group mentality about western capitalism was that it was that that it there were people of the world would have a natural affinity for it that if you projected through Hollywood movies what wealth and prosperity and democratic freedom looked like, that people in the nations of the world would see it and admire it and aspire to it. And that's always been the American story, that people around the world, despite what they think about American bullying imperialism, they still want what America has. You know, they want to come here. They want. And if for some reason they don't want it and they don't accept our proselytization, uh, they will accept it at the at the end of a rifle. That's that insecurity making a separate argument, which is you will. Right. But that the insecurity is born out of a feeling that somebody that is in the third world, for instance, is so far that the, there would be so many steps that their nation would have to undertake for them to ever get a kind of Levittown experience for themselves. <laughs> that if you're in, if you're in Algeria or you're in Vietnam, the appeal of Marxism is a lot more immediate. Uh, you're not, it, it, Marxism is not promising you Levittown. What Marxism is promising you is a leveling of status in your own world. So the, you know, the village headman or the guys upstream are going to get taken down a peg and that's going to lift you not to 
not to a land of America, but to a, to your own land at a level that's like incrementally better than what you have now. You're not going to be putting a bunch of perfectly good food down the incinerator, <laughs> but you'll be right. better off than you were yesterday. But also, and crucially, it's going to free you from imperialism as a, it's going to protect you from the French and the Americans coming into your country and trying to colonize it or take your rubber plants or, you know, exploit you as workers. And that's where America is so insecure because if Vietnam becomes a Marxist country and Laos and then the Philippines and then Japan, um, what happens is that even in 1965, we had, there was a, enough of a global economy that, I mean, both ideologies presume that the whole world pursues that, you know, that economic and, and political method. Right. And it's, it's very hard to have half the world be communist and half the world be capitalist because there's no point of intersection between the two. You can't really have trade, you know? Yeah. Bob, I know opposes it. And every one of the chiefs. John, you were talking so much about like the insecurity of the moment being a reason for decisions being made politically around this time. And hearing you say that made me think about how this movie is so persuasive about the insecurities surrounding the people involved and how damaging past success can be to a certain type of person. Like Lyndon Johnson, as you were saying, was like known as, as one of the great politicians ever. And to know that that is his reputation leading up to his presidency and to see him fumble fuck around this whole situation, I think underscores that. But also you look at Robert McNamara and he's being called the hero of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Like he's he's brought along into this new administration because of that reputation. He's He's not coasting, but his reputation of past success gives him this credibility during this new problem. And you see him backslide due to this insecurity too as soon as the as soon as his streak gets broken of wins and the same goes for Lyndon Johnson you can see them both get a little bit wide-eyed as the movie goes on like i'm supposed to be winning right now this is not what i do and i really like that the film was so persuasive in that way about you know it's not just about political insecurity it's about personal insecurity during the the making of these decisions yeah, and uh, just a complete failure to understand or try to understand where someone from somewhere else is coming from culturally. And it, the, it's not just a Western bias that is a bias of this is what I know. It's a, it's a Western bias that comes from a, a, just a conviction that everybody in the world wants what we have and that what we have in America and in the West is the highest evolution thus far of the idea. And everyone else in the world that isn't where we are in terms of economic development and, and democratic politics and sort of capitalist exchange, the reason they're not there is they're not there yet. It's not that they're not there because there's another way of looking at it. It's that they're not there because they haven't gotten there. And if they were just goosed along, um, 
that this is where they would inevitably arrive as well. So our job in the world is to help everybody else, you know, like leapfrog all the mistakes, you know, get, they don't need their own industrial revolution. We'll handle that for them. And like, it's chauvinist. It's, and it's weird that they would have so much insecurity about it. And so much at the same time, like unexamined confidence that we are the best thing that ever happened that ever was. It kind of ties in with that thing of LBJ being so passionate about, you know, making sure that the casualties are low and that like nobody, you know, like that, that they're doing this the right way, that they aren't, you know, fighting this war in an ugly way. Because if you just believe that everybody is like essentially an American that hasn't realized that they're an American yet, like if once we're done with this war, we set up a bunch of schools and highways and, you know, and American style infrastructure and, and they'll believe all the same shit we believe. Like if you're just mapping yourself onto the rest of the world, I can see why he would behave that way. He's not othering them. He's it's like the opposite. He's like, he sees himself in them because he doesn't know them and doesn't know that they aren't him. Right. We look back now and say, what an incredible amount of hubris in the sense that the civil rights movement is happening during the same period in the United States and a disproportionate number of African-Americans are fighting in Vietnam. We're, we're not even managing our own house in terms of, you know, freedom and economic development for, for Americans. How could they have this chauvinism, this, this confidence that America was the best place and the best thing. But from their perspective, there was nowhere else in the world in 1960 that had a better record of like conflict or cultural resolution. Nowhere else in the world was treating their immigrant populations any better. You know, they see themselves as part of, at that point in time, a historical continuum, which is a continuum of increasing rights for everyone. And the fact that there are a lot of people in the United States in 1960 that don't have equivalent rights, there is not equity yet, doesn't shock them because it had only just recently occurred to them. And they don't look at anywhere else. There's not even at that point an academic model that suggests the kind of the kind of vision we have now where it seems inevitable and it seems like where we are now is kind of an embarrassment because we can all we can, we can look at 2020 from the perspective of 2050 in our imaginations and they talk about that right. in this war in this movie when he when he leans yeah. into Wallace and says you know how do you want to be remembered in 1990 in 1960 like the that sense we have of the inevitability of the extension of the of not just the franchise but of of equality in all respects to everyone. The United States cinematic universe. Right. We, <laughs> we feel that's so inevitable now that we're so frustrated that we have to be stuck in this moment in time. But that wasn't true in 1960. You know, that, that kind of science fiction, the familiarity with the idea that we're all, we, that if we could time travel, like, can't we just get on with it? Like, why does it take time to, to get these rights and these resources to these people that clearly need them? When you're sitting around in the Johnson administration, you're like, do you really think in like a few years there's going to be like 
like we're going to look back on on the George Wallace's of the world and think that they were on the right side of history. No fucking way. But but to extend that to uh, the people of Vietnam that they perceive, you know, that anyone in this administration only heard about Vietnam in 1954 and didn't think about it again until 1960. Right. How different is it to conceive of a world where a George Wallace can be persuaded and changed by a conversation with someone? I mean, Lyndon Johnson changed the trajectory of his life. Well, except George Wallace ran for president in 1972 on a white supremacist platform. I'm not forgiving George Wallace, obviously, but like, I thought he he did not die the monster that that he was for much of his life. I think like I thought he he recanted a bunch of shit, but maybe that's just the the cowardice of a of a dying man. What happened with George Wallace was he got shot and paralyzed. The last act of George Wallace was that he was in a wheelchair. You know that has a tendency to mellow a man. Shitting in a bag is really going to change your perspective on supremacy. I bet. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was still governor of Alabama in 1975 and ran again in 1976 in the primary against Carter. And I think what happened was he like did the whole I found Jesus thing. But by this point, we're in the 80s. He couldn't keep imagining a separate but equal Alabama. Uh, But I don't I don't know if that means that he. Oh, I forgot about this. He he won another term of governor in 1982. 82. He's still governor of Alabama. I just may not be able to get things under control without some uh, assistance. Gary Sinise uh, doesn't have a lot of scenes in this film, but I think he really does great in them. Gary Sinise, uh, a, a frequent collaborator with John Frankenheimer, turns out. But uh, I thought he was really good in this movie. Too. I noticed in the in the scene where they see George Wallace on TV that there's like a really slick camera move happening for yeah. a 1960s television broadcast of George Wallace yelling something on the steps of a state house. Right. And I, I was like, that's a camera move that they're doing in the rest of this movie, but it is not plausible that they would have a news camera set up on a dolly for (laughs) for George Wallace. (laughs) I don't know which one of you mentioned that this film's strength is in its casting and not necessarily in its effects work. And there are some parts in the film that definitely look rough in that way. But there is a very specific visual language happening throughout the film that I did want to talk about, which is the idea of two characters having different opinions about things being in the same focus using a a split diopter lens or something like, and I think it emphasizes the sort of insanity a person must feel if you are Lyndon Johnson and you're getting your advice from two people in two different parts of the room. They're both in clear focus. They're both contradicting each other. And you're supposed to make a decision based on that, that, that clarity when it's coming from multiple people uh, and holding those those opposing ideas in your head at the same time, I thought really emphasized the feeling that pervaded this entire movie. Agreed. Yeah. I mean, this is a movie about a bunch of different conversations that happen in smoky back rooms. And that can be a very like staid feeling, but this movie does not feel like that. And I think part of that is owing to the fact that 
Frankenheimer has the camera flying around these sets. Like every, like almost every setup has a camera move in it. And it reminds me a little bit of the West Wing. Like we're not getting like walk and talks as much in a movie like this, but like how do you add visual interest to a film that um, is as, you know, as confined to the kinds of spaces that this is confined to. And uh, I think it's very, uh, very well done in, in those terms. That's the kind of stuff that I don't notice at all, except when it's done badly. And, yeah. and I didn't notice it in this movie because it was done well. And I mean, when I watched the West Wing, when I watched this movie, I'm amazed at like the idea of a workplace, like the, the White House is always depicted like this, right? Like people are screaming at each other. Like the, the differences of opinion boil over and turn into shouting fights. And I wonder how much truth there is in that. Like, are the issues so big when you work at the White House that this is how things get done? Or is it just that this is how we dramatize what the White House might be like? Because like if if I had to go into a workplace every day where people were like, no, Ben, fuck you. You're fucking wrong. I mean, like, obviously, every time we talk about the podcast offline, it's kind of like that. Yeah. But you are yeah. fucking wrong is why. <laughs> I don't know if I would want to work there. It's a yeah, I think it's a component of filling a, a cabinet with. What you imagine are the smartest men in America that do this work. That right. there's not one of them that's going to be like, I'm going to sit this argument out. You know, they're all going to have a strong opinion about it and they're all going to think everybody else is dumber than them. And the path of success that took them to that place is is one of a victory streak, right? Right. How could I possibly be wrong in this argument? Look at look at my life up until now. <laughs> I'm right about everything. That's like one of the right. main things about me. <laughs> there's got to be a lot of power, too, in being the one in the room that disagrees. You know, like, mm -hmm. and I think what we see in the, in the current administration is that the, the, uh, that the president doesn't brook any disagreement. So he fills his, well, he keeps firing people. He fires anybody that shows any independence and he probably has filled his, his roster now with people that just nod and smile to our everlasting detriment. But the whole, the whole concept of a president surrounding uh, themselves with people that have a, strong opinions. And in a way, I mean, Johnson, the whole start of the movie where he gives that speech and he's like, I got all these guys from Harvard and Yale and I'm from the West Texas teachers college and I'm in charge. Lol. And all the, <laughs> all the Harvard and Yale guys in the audience all kind of applaud, but you can see they also have their teeth clenched <laughs> in the sense of like, mm -hmm. oh shit, we got to work for this hick now. Except that he was, except that Johnson was like incredibly gifted at the art of politics. He's the exception that proves the rule. It's not that, uh, it's not that it says anything about the kind of elitism of uh, the halls of power. Well, and the thing is that elitism isn't necessarily good at politics. It's, it's the old, it's right. the old version of politics, which is like, yeah, this is, you go out there and you're in your, in your white linen suit and you kiss every baby and you get everybody to line up behind your program. You know, that's so gone from American life now. And now it's just like, you just walk around and you count everybody's head according to their political party. And you're like, well, it's 54 against 46 again. I don't know what we're going to do. 
It's like, well, uh, gerrymander it a different way, yeah, I guess. Exactly. Why don't we put some more rules in the Senate about how guys, if they get up and go to the bathroom, they lose their vote. <laughs> like the world has gone insane. And partly as a reaction to feeling like the old way of a guy in a white linen suit trading chickens with people was insane. It right. was just a, it was a different kind of insane. Watching this now and try in, in a way it's like a kind of cultural exchange trying to imagine this cabinet in their own terms rather than applying 21st century um, thinking to what they were like. It's interesting. This movie made in 2002, there's still a very accurate depiction of the way people would have talked the language they used. And if this movie were made now in 2020, I mean, this is a question for the room. Do you think that they could have, that, that you could make this movie in 2020 and accurately depict the way people spoke or would, are there just too many words that you couldn't have in a movie? It definitely took an adjustment to the flowery language that took some effort. Yeah. I mean, I think the modern treatment where LBJ is like, Ho Chi Minh is Bay, all right? And Bay got me like would uh would would great I somewhat. <laughs> I had no idea what you were saying at first. I was like, was there a character <laughs> named Bay? It feels like maybe there could have been. <laughs> I think one of the centerpiece scenes in this film happens during one of the cabinet meetings, and it's toward 68 when things have gotten pretty dark about the war and it's it happens like the lights are out in the in the cabinet room everyone is looking over a slideshow there's an almost reverential tone to the description of the resilience of the Vietnamese people in this in this meeting and it's blowing people away their capacity to not only absorb losses losses that like strategically the United States was like, like they, they chalked up as victories. Like, yeah, we actually did destroy oil refineries and bridges and shit. And then look at, look at these slides from hours later, like they're rebuilt again. It's not that, it's not that our, our strikes were unsuccessful. It's that their capacity to recover is so great. And that's like the moment where I feel like the great mistake of this war dawns on, on everyone. And there are many examples of this. There's the bicycle brigade. There's the there's the teenage crater fillers. There's the guy who has a top ten hit song written about the the person attempted who attempted to assassinate McNamara. And I like I could have I could have lived for another couple of seconds on McNamara in that moment, like <laughs> just to gauge whether or not he's heard the song. You got to believe he's listened to the song, right? <laughs> if someone wrote a song about your attempted assassination. You'd have to, out of curiosity, listen to it, right? It was a number one song in Vietnam. Come on, John. Someone tries to kill you and then they write a song about it. You wouldn't try. You wouldn't find a, a copy of the song and listen to it, even if it was in a different well, language. I, I would. You'd have I to would, do it. Sure. If you're McNamara, I, I feel like he may be he may be too incurious for that. But that was a, that was a moment. But then, like the biggest to me was the stamp made out of Norman Morrison. Like such was his legend in Vietnam that they made a postage stamp with his face on it. And to me, I think that makes a great rating system 
for Path to War. Like, this is an enemy that was underestimated from the start, but is Path to War an underestimated made-for-television war film about the Vietnam War? It's up to us to decide. One to five stamps will be the rating system. I really like that this film is more about personality than strategy. I think this is an angle to the war that I personally haven't often gotten through my movie watching. And so I think when we started having the conversation, there was a resistance to a film like this. Like it's too talky. It's too, it's too conversational. It's too dramatic and three hours would it be able to hold our attention? And I feel like personally, it, it really did. And it was for that reason. I liked I liked getting to understand the perspectives in play here. And I was very surprised at how sympathetically all the parties were presented. I mean, before I watched this movie, my position was that Lyndon Johnson was a hawk and he was waiting behind Kennedy to start this war and Kennedy's death like made it happen and and he was like chomping at the bit to begin it but that is not the story that this movie tells it made me feel sorry for Johnson a person who rose to power in in really sad ways having an idea of what he wanted to do and then having having his direction wrestled away from him in the way that it was uh, made him especially sympathetic to me and whether or not it's true, I'm trying to judge the film for its ability to tell this story. And like LBJ being a victim of his circumstances and not the architect of them, I think can teach us a lot about how presidents operate from then on, even modern ones. Like a president is only as good as the advice that, that they get and, and the advisors who give it. And I think you can see a lot of parallels between then and now. And I think the now I'm talking about is the 2002 George W. Bush administration. But like you see a, a president at that time who was ably manipulated by the people he was surrounded with. And I think the essential question of this film is who has the power in a presidential administration? I think the film makes a makes the case that it may not be the president. And that is a very interesting thing to think about. I thought the ending to this film was so sad. We didn't talk at all about it, but the surprise moment of, of Johnson announcing that he would not seek or accept a nomination, uh, it almost rushes through and past that moment. And we don't really get to live in the consequences of it, but I wonder how differently we'd, we would feel about the film if we got another five to 10 minutes uh, to sit with the consequence of that decision. Because kind of a lot happened in the aftermath. Um, I like the movie a lot. It's not something that I would suggest uh, everyone sees. But if you're a Vietnam War film completionist, I think this belongs in your bookshelf of films to watch. I think I think it was well worth watching. I'm going to give it a four and a quarter of those Norman Morrison stamps. Were you, every time they talked about what was going on on the ground in Vietnam, just picturing Colonel Troutman and John Rambo running around? <laughs> yeah. Of course he was. Rambo <laughs> drenched in sweat. I, I thought about the shine box scene and how tragic that was. Yeah. The end is 
is pretty amazing because it's like it's this descent into into chaos that at every point he has like he has offered so many times the option of let's stop like they can't get their heads around the idea of if we quit now and and like try to put this thing you know back on the path toward diplomacy like it's going to look like we it's going to look like we lost and then i'm going to be the guy that lost the war the first war for the united states and like the disgrace that he leaves the administration in is so much worse than that yeah so fucking tragic and a tragedy of his own making in a lot of ways i agree that this is not like required viewing by any means but it is a really fascinating story. And I think they, you know, like, I I don't think that this movie paints outside the lines too much. I think it, it tries to be pretty close to uh, depicting the kinds of things that actually happened. And I feel like I learned a lot from it. I feel like I have an understanding of how we got into the Vietnam conflict that is richer and more nuanced now than I did before. And part of that is the movie and part of it is the reading I did after the movie, but I'm really glad I saw it. So I'll give it four stamps. I think a part of the movie that's missing is the degree to which Johnson's sense of himself in history, not wanting to be the guy that lost the first war for the United States, not wanting to appear soft on communism, not wanting to suffer that loss of face. What isn't in the movie is how much of that is driven by his conscious, the the sense of him being conscious of American domestic political opinion. Like what Johnson was, what he was thinking about a lot of the time, and you see it, it, it's teased in this movie, right? You see him uh, looking at the newspaper, the editorial column or the uh, editorial cartoon it's almost entirely personified in the, the character played by Philip Baker Hall, Everett Dirksen, who was like a prominent Republican senator at the time. And what we what we have is this this character, Senator Hall, who is like a sympathetic friend, but also a Republican partisan. But this was the rise, this was the dawn of the rise of American conservatism, this era, the Goldwater era where all of a sudden, you know, Nixon lost to Kennedy and there, there became this groundswell of hawkish, conspiracy-minded, libertarian philosophy, conservative um, opposition that during the Johnson administration was regarded as, as fringe. You know, it, ha- it didn't really get mainstreamed until Reagan, but it was really there. And every time Johnson showed any kind of a, Anytime any any politician showed lenience or sympathy or um, even the slightest bit of vulnerability, I'm talking about toward the Soviets or to the Vietnamese or whoever our perceived enemy was, there was this incredibly vocal response that they were soft on communism, that they were too liberal to to meet the threat of this global communist uh, octopus that was ready to engulf the world. And so democratic politicians, despite having bigger fish to fry in their own minds, felt like they had to be fighting this, uh, this 
this rear action against the criticism that they were too soft on communism. Otherwise, they would become politically vulnerable in America. And you just didn't see that in this movie so much. You know, Johnson appears to be making these decisions based on his sense of how he's going to appear in the history books, which I think was true. But but there wasn't there wasn't that because we do see him gradually go from being gra- gradually fall out of favor with the left. But but the story isn't completely told about how much he was how much he ran as a as a peace candidate and became a war president because he was being pushed and or felt pushed and pressured by this political movement on the American right. I think this movie is, is important to watch for people, even as a, because this kind of like deep dive into politics, it's just so useful when you're thinking about what's happening now, when you're thinking about the last 10 years, when you think about the next 10 years, I think what's useful about it is that all these guys as they were coming up in the 1930s and 40s, they were leftists. They were the radicals. You know, these were the people that had uh, that had ideas that seemed crazy at the time. And watching them go from 1940 to 1970 and gradually and, and you know, and it's a valid criticism that they were the radical left, but they all went to Groton. But watching them become not just disillusioned, but gradually go through this this process of becoming the establishment and then the, you know, the establishment conservativized them and corrupted them. And by 1970, uh, they are the enemy of the people. You can imagine how disillusioning or how, how just like soul crushing that was, you know, Lyndon's, he, he says it a few times in the movie, like, wait a minute, I'm the, I'm the hero of the, of the people. And he can't believe that it's Vietnam that ends up being his undoing. So anyway, in that sense, it's a, I think it's crucial to watch. And I, and, and this is a war movie. Absolutely. It's the kind of war movie that makes this show like fun to do, but there's just too much missing from it. I think for me to give it more than three and a half stamps, because if they had made Gambon put a zucchini in his pants, (laughs) so it's like all right every every scene just be conscious of the fact that there is a foil wrapped zucchini in your pants and let that be let that guide like how far out you jut your chin i think it would have been a would have been a little closer makes me wonder whether or not your guy is wrapped in foil john Mm -hmm. who who would your guy be in this film so my guy you didn't see in this movie my guy was McGeorge Bundy, who's played by Cliff D. Young. He only appears a couple of times and is kind of dismissed uh, in one scene by Johnson. He says something and Johnson kind of cuts him off. But McGeorge Bundy was the classic example of this guy I'm talking about, right? He was like the young, preppy, smarty pants, leftist. I mean, McNamara was the, the secretary of defense. Bundy was the national security advisor. Like he's the one kind of sitting in the org chart closer to Johnson. And he was very involved in all of this and, and was, 
you know, the classic sort of elite liberal thinker that gradually became a sort of hawkish mid sixties Democrat and kind of equally an architect of the, of the war also awarded a presidential medal of freedom in Johnson's final act, like a, like a main character of the story. And in the movie, he just is sort of like uh, he's, he appears like twice as a guy with a funny haircut and then is gone. Well, you've definitely appeared as a guy with a funny haircut Boy, before John. That's my thing. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he's always been a character that was important to me in, in reading about this stuff. And I think it's because when I was 13 and I realized there was that Johnson's national security advisor was named Mick George. Uh, I was like, <laughs> I got to know more about whatever culture it is that could produce a man named Mick George. Is it N new England elite? It is. Yeah. That's exactly <laughs> what it is. <laughs> <laughs> Good guy. We haven't talked a ton about the uh, the women in this film. Uh, Lady Bird Johnson has a has a number of scenes. Um, real fun uh, portrayal by F Felicity Huffman. Whenever I hear the name Lady Bird, I just think of Hank Hill calling his dog Lady Bird. <laughs> but uh, it's one of their daughters that is my guy uh, for a scene where. Um, LBJ is sitting in the Oval Office by himself. He's just like pulled a chair up to like three feet in front of the TVs that he has over in the corner and is just yelling his head off at Bobby Kennedy on the TV screen. And one of his daughters like comes in to say something to him and sees him yelling at Bobby Kennedy and just kind of turns and slinks out. <laughs> so like, eh. I know when dad is in a mood like this, not to interrupt him is basically... <laughs> <laughs> what what that scene telegraphs to me and i i uh i laughed out loud at the moment i thought the performance was great and uh you know for as sidelined as the women are in this movie i think the the performances were all really great my guy also comes from a scene of of mood god the discomfort of that scene where george ball gets drunk <laughs> and he starts laying into people is pretty rough, but there is a social combat black belt move that comes from Dean Rusk in this scene that is so subtle and perfectly done. So there's there's a group of people talking and Dean Rusk is one of them when, when George Ball approaches and everyone sees him coming, but Dean Rusk has a plan in his back pocket to stop this terrible thing from happening before it starts. So he signals his wife who is talking in a different group to come over and say that uh, the banquet's ready or something like something to break up the conversation. He's done this wordlessly to her. And as soon as Ball approaches ready to drunkenly throw his firebomb in the middle of the group, <laughs> she comes over and breaks it up. Oh, how I envy that that wordless communication. <laughs> yeah, uh, something that really from the realm of science fiction. I've, I've pitched that to my wife a million times. We need a couple of just like cues when we're in a big group of people that we can just make eye contact and you'll know or I'll know that X needs to happen. Yeah, uh, impossible. Impossible to conceive of today. <laughs> but uh, But back then, nice bit of business deployed there. 
by Secretary of State Dean Rusk. Probably what made him such a capable Secretary of State was uh, was thinking like that. It was just a like a micro scene uh, within the greater story here that I just really delighted in. So I'm going to make him my guy for that. Good guy. It's time to pick our next film, gentlemen. Oh, yeah. Let me get my dice cup going here. There's been a lot of talk about our uh, our dice rolls. Yeah. Recently. And I want to just explain to people that I roll the 120-sided die here in Seattle, Washington. Mm-hmm. And Ben, the keeper of the master list, then finds the number and reveals the movie. Now, I believe Ben to be a person of very high integrity. And so when Ben tells us the movie, I believe that Ben is doing an honest and forthright job of obeying the rules of the of the randomized list. Well, it's yeah, I mean and and it's randomized even further because Every week I add a, a film or two, you know, we get recommendations from people on uh, our various social media channels. And uh, I occasionally see one as like, a, if you liked this, you might like this when we when we watch a movie and I'll check to see if it's on the list. And if it's not, I'll add it. And then you re-randomize it. And when I, when I add a movie, I randomize the list again. So there's there's a lot of randomization uh, at play here. Yeah. There's, a, there's always some speculation, some haters out there that think we're gaming the system because Adam is so adamant about not letting people peek behind his curtain. But I want people to know that we... I don't want anyone to see my foil-covered dick. <laughs> we we have a conceit for this uh, podcast, and we adhere to that conceit because all three of us are, like, super-duper tightly wound about weird, yeah. weird stuff like this. Anyway, here's the dice roll. 100% authentic dice in a cup. I want to make sure this die this uh, this die is nice and rolled. Yeah, sounds well rolled to me. Ninety three, ninety three is the number. Ninety three. Ooh, uh, we are staying in the Vietnam era, gentlemen. This is a nineteen ninety five film directed by the Hughes brothers. It's Dead Presidents. I saw this movie a long time ago. It, it's like guys who are trying to do a heist and also kind of like processing their trauma from Vietnam at the same time. I think it's a lot of like Vietnam as flashback, if memory serves. It's a heist. Huh. Heist movie. I think so. That's 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 the dead presidents. Yeah, uh, right, right, right. Referenced in the title. <laughs> I didn't see it at the time. Uh you added it to the list, actually. Interestingly enough, yeah, huh. one that I uh, one that I wanted to see. I think I missed it because I just wasn't going to movies in 1995. Yeah, too busy getting high on my own supply. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I'm really looking forward to it. Um, this is one I've been meaning to revisit. So. Uh, so that will be next week on Friendly Fire. In the meantime, we're going to leave it with Rob's, 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 Rob's. So for John Roderick and Adam Pranica, I've been Ben Harrison. To the victor, go the spoiler alerts. Absolutely. Yes. Listen to me. 
Friendly Fire is a Maximum Fun podcast hosted by Adam Pranica, Ben Harrison, and John Roderick. This show is produced by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music, and our podcast art is by Nick Dittmer. Would you like to hear more of Friendly Fire? Last year we covered The Big Red One, a movie starring Lee Marvin and Mark Hamill that follows a hardened sergeant and the four core members of his infantry unit as they try to survive World War II. You can also gain access to our bonus episodes by heading to MaximumFun.org join. And for as little as $5 a month, not only will you receive our Pork Chop episodes, you'll also gain access to all the Maximum Fun bonus content. You can now follow us on Twitter and Instagram under the handles FriendlyFireRSS. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week with another episode of Friendly Fire. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.